0: Good evening. This is Richard Shu, host of Shoe Untied. Today, I'm very pleased to have with me as my guest Kurt Eichenwald, New York Times bestselling author. Uh, Kurt, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So, Kurt, let me start by asking you um, when did you know you were going to be an author?
1: uh truthfully when i got my first book contract <laughs> <laughs> um you know i i had always been uh, uh a, a lot of a reader um books were were big for me um and you know i i started working for the new york times when i was 24 <sighs> 25 and um that was exciting. Newspapers were exciting, but um, I also wanted to do um, something more, something broader. And so, about 1994, I decided uh, I was going to try to write a book, which I had no idea if I could do. And I, you know, I said to my wife, "This is like, you know, I'm going to jump off a cliff when I sign this contract." And I'm going to have to do something one way or the other. I'm either going to you know, figure out how not to hit the ground badly or I'll splat. <laughs> so, well, course, well,
0: tell me, well, tell me when, you've, when, you've, when, you, when you wrote your first book, did you have an idea and then you decided to write the book or did you decide you wanted to write a book and then you found, found the idea?
1: Well, it was interesting. I I had the idea and um, I went to an agent and the agent said, that's a terrible idea. So I thought, oh, what do I know? (laughs) And um, then another agent called me about three weeks later saying, oh, I see what you've been writing. That would be a great book. Do you want to do a book? So that's when I realized that agents have widely differing opinions. And what was the experience like
0: writing that first book?
1: You know, books are are, are really hard. Um, they're um, you know what what I do is uh, narrative reconstruction of of true events, and um, you know there are people who will look at it and say, "Oh, that's impossible that you know this." You know, I'll I'll talk about you know the color of the digits on an alarm clock or that when somebody bit into a sandwich, it scraped the top of his mouth. And, um, you know, all of that stuff comes from somewhere. And, you know, every interview I've ever conducted for a book, you know, at some point someone will throw their hands up in frustration and say, why do you need to know that? Mm -hmm. And um, for my second, third, and fourth books, I've always been able to say, look at the one preceding it and you'll see what I'm doing the first one, it was more, you know, you have to trust me. And, um, it's interesting cause I, I, you could always tell, um, when there was someone I had interviewed, um, who would appear on, uh, you know, a television program about the book. I mean, they were, you know, 60 minutes has done stuff on my books. Dateline did stuff on my books. And there was an FBI agent who was on for, um, um, a Dateline episode about my second book. And, you know, he, he, he had been trained, he was like, and then I walked through the door, and I opened the door, and the rug was green. And I stepped through and I was like, Oh, wow, he sounds like robot. But really, that's just sort of what he's now learned to do when I, you know, in relation to this topic, because that's how I interviewed him.
0: Now that you've written, so now that you've written these uh, four books, is there like a sort of an underlying theme or, or a particular kind of topic that you like to write about for books?
1: Well, the the thing about about um, that I like about books are are narrative arcs. In other words, you know, not just a book that says here is information where you're going to learn things, um, but You know, information you're going to learn that 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 has that comes in an entertaining package. I mean, I hate to put it any other way. That's a that's a story um, that uh, is is meant to be a thriller, and it's it's hard to uh, find those kinds of stories all the time. Um, In fact, my my second book uh, was The Informant. Um, was about, uh, if you put it one way, it was about a price fixing conspiracy at a large private grain company. If you put it, what I was really writing, it was the story of the highest ranking corporate executive to ever become a cooperating witness with the FBI, but was simultaneously losing his mind and no one knew it. Um, one the kind of book i would write the other one is not uh but the the more exciting sounding version contains within it it's built around that 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 somewhat boring sounding story and when i went to my uh boss at the times to tell him i was writing another book i'd been writing about all sorts of things and he said um oh is it going to be about this you know healthcare thing you've been covering i was like no is it gonna be about this Wall Street thing you're good you've been covering? I said, no. And he goes, What's it gonna be about? And I said, oh, it's the ADM story. And he actually laughed and said, Good luck with that. Mm. Well, that's been my my that book sells to this day. It was made into a major motion picture with Matt Damon. It was um uh, and the reason why is because it had a narrative arc, it had it had um, it was interesting. It was an interesting story. Not not that ooh, I made it interesting, but you know, from the beginning, I could see it was an interesting story. What did you think about the movie? Did it do the book justice? Um, it, that was also very interesting because the very first meeting um, I had, Steven Soderbergh was the director, and the very first meeting we had. Uh, he said, you know, I want this to be, the movie to be exactly like the book. And I said, that's impossible. It's a 600-page book with five subplots. It'll be like a five-hour movie. And we're going back and forth. And he says, you know, we're supposed to be having this argument the other way around. You know, the authors say it needs to be exactly like the book. The (laughs) Probably 90% of the dialogue um, from the movie came straight out of the book. Hmm. Um, and you know, they had this thing where the main character, um, who again was, was having some serious psychological problems, uh, was the unreliable narrator of the entire movie. And the screenwriter would call me up um, because I knew this fellow, Mark Whitaker, very, very well, I'd been, you know, I'd been covering him for, uh, six, seven years by that point, interviewed him in jail. You know, he, he ended up going to jail, interviewed him in jail for like 30 hours. Um, you know, knew his, knew his wife, knew his family. And so the screenwriter would call me up and say, okay, this is happening in the script right now. Channel Whitaker for me. Mm -hmm. And I would just start reciting things that I thought would be, you know, this is how he thinks. And that would become the narration. And so the narration is very odd. It's not, it's not, Oh, I'm walking into doing this right now. He'll start thinking about the fact that his wife doesn't like the, the, the feel of avocado guacamole in her mouth. Mm -hmm. And, um, the Whitakers were stunned at how much stuff was in there that was true. Like he brushes his teeth in the shower and and it was like, How did you know all this? It's like because you told me over the years. I mean, everything you said, I I, you know, kept in in files.
0: Tell me a little bit about the conspiracy of fools. I read that book. It was fantastic. How did that come about? And what was it like writing that book and doing the research?
1: Um that was a, uh, you know, I'd written about corporate fraud for for twenty years by that point, and that was about Enron, which you know, for um, there is there are groups of people who call ourselves fraud aficionados. We just find fraud cases fascinating, and that was sort of the ultimate fraud for for fraud aficionados. The reason why. Is that you know? Enron had every element of fraud. Um, uh, you know, if there was a if there was a kind of you know, accounting fraud, securities fraud, insurance fraud, uh, 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 insider trading, theft, embezzlement, you know, money laundering. I mean, it was just it was all there. <laughs> and what what made it interesting for me again? Um, you know, there were, there were 12 Enron books. Mine was the last one. Uh, and mine was the only one that was a New York times bestseller. And the reason why, again, it's not because I'm, I'm some, you know, particularly talented person, but it's because I, I did not see this as a story about the Enron corporation. I did not see this as a story about, um, um, Look at this, you know, amazing fraud. I saw this as uh, a story about these fascinating people in this incredible circumstance Mm -hmm. where, you know, one of the largest corporations in America implodes in about two weeks. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, how did it get there? And, you know, the easy story was, oh, there were a bunch of crooks. Um, and that wasn't the true story. The, 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 yes, there were crimes, but what made it so much more interesting was that there was a massive amount of incompetence at this incredibly, you know, well-respected, powerful company. And that's why it's called conspiracy of fools because it's, 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 you know yes there's crime there are conspiracies but really what killed the company was that they were fools mm. and the the crimes just you know lit a match in a in a in a basement full of gasoline mm. and so you know when you go through that book it's it you don't need to know anything about accounting you don't need to know anything about business any more than you would if you read you know, a John Grisham book. I mean, the firm, when you get right down to it, you know, Grisham's first major book is a business book. It's about a law firm that represents, you know, corporations that end up being criminals. Well, the conspiracy of fools, you don't need to know anything about accounting or business. It's, it's really kind of a thriller. Uh, now that information is there if you want it and it's there in, um, very simplified terms so that people, you know, if they want to understand it can, but you could truthfully just, you know, you know, skim the, the, the explanations of the, uh, of the financial elements because they come in the middle of, of the story itself. They're not, they're not these lengthy, let's talk about, you know, um, um, structured finance. They, they are, you get only as much as you need to know to understand what the story, you know, to keep the story going if you want to know those details. But otherwise it's just a story of people.
0: Well, given the fact that you're uh, sort of a, Fraud aficionado was then, was that then your favorite book because of that?
1: No, actually the informant was my favorite book. Um, and the reason why is because, um, it was such an unbelievable story. Um, and it was a circumstance where, you know, uh, strange, you know, strangely, everything in real life lined up exactly the way I would want it to if it had been a novel in terms of, you know, the evolution of events. Um, there was also something more, you know, I was trying to accomplish with the book, which was, you know, I've always, this is going to sound strange. I've always been fascinated by concepts of truth. In other words, you know, somebody reads in the newspaper, um, The Trump administration is going to outlaw the color green, uh, 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 officials said yesterday. Well, people think, oh, the Trump administration is going to outlaw the color green. That's not what you know. What you know is that somebody said that's going to happen. And people don't always distinguish the difference. There's also this concept that people believe that if they have 95 percent of the story, they have 95 percent of the truth. And the reality is you can have 95% of the facts and none of the truth. And so what the informant was, was um, a game on truth. Um, you will always think at every stage, you'll think you know what's happening. Uh, you think, you know, you know, okay, this person is acting in this way and it's been made clear because, you know, he said, this is what I'm doing. But in fact, um, they've been lying and I'm not telling you they're lying. Mm -hmm. And so there are five times in the book where everything you thought you knew suddenly flips and all the facts that you had mean something completely different. And it's not until about the last 40 pages of the book where you finally understand, you know, what reality is in this story and that everything you believed up to that point, everything was absolutely backed up by the facts I was sharing. But everything that you believed up until that point uh, was not true. And so, you know, to me, it was a commentary on journalism. It was a commentary on um, our propensity to, you know, seek out those people who slice and dice facts for us to reinforce what we already believe. Um, And it was a commentary on the complexity of truth that, you know, you can't simply assume That, um, you know, the truth is too complicated a concept to be reduced to a news article or a single broadcast or even a a, a book. You can only – all you can hope for is that what you're getting is accurate and fair. Mm. And so that was what the informant was intended to demonstrate. Mm.
0: Now, when you write these books, how much time do you spend on research relative to the actual writing part of it?
1: Um, It it differs uh, by book. Um, The one that involved the most research, reporting, etc., was my uh, book about um, the war on terror uh, called 500 Days. And that book I started in 2007 and I delivered the manuscript – no, I started in 2006 – And I delivered the manuscript in 2011 and it took me about a year to write the book. So, you know, that is many, many years of reporting. And um, the reason why is um, I was I was undertaking something that was that was much more difficult than things I had done in the past. It's, It's easier to get. The you know people who are willing to tell you you know what happened in a corporate boardroom than it is to get people to tell you what happened in the Oval Office mm. and to get them to reconstruct it in a way where you can present it as narrative and so um, and plus it, it, it's interesting uh, one of the things I found quite amusing is that the uh, political folks in Washington, um, lied much more than the criminals I'd interviewed in the past. And so I had to, you know, really, um, I mean, there were people who would take credit for events they had nothing to do with. There were people who would, you know, talk about their role in a particular meeting. And there was one guy who was giving extremely detailed information about a meeting he he said he was in. And I let him go for a while, and then I produced photographs that were taken at the meeting and said, show me where you are. And he goes, oh, I must have been out of the room at that point. And it's like, okay, here are here are the, the um, uh, recorded notes from that meeting. Show me where you're speaking. And, you know, I, I give everybody what I sort of call the journalistic Miranda warning, that I will listen to everything they have to say. And I will incorporate it as fact until you know, until I blend it with every other piece of information I have. Until they lie, and lying is both one of commission and omission. Um, I said to all of them, you know, you can say I'm not going to answer that question, but you can't answer the question part way. You can't um, lie. And if you do, everything you've said will get thrown out. Uh, I will not use information from a liar. And so people say amazing things to me, you know, as a result. (laughs) Now,
0: do you enjoy the research part more or the writing part more?
1: Oh, I hate them both. You know, I I have often said nothing is more terrible than 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 doing a book and nothing is more enjoyable than having a book published. (laughs) So it's sort of it's sort of, uh, you know, it's a a very it's a very lonely exercise um, in the writing. You are by yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, and in the reporting, I mean, I spend an enormous amount of time, uh, just persuading people to talk to me Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, I'm going to be, I'm a very harsh critic of, of journalism. Um, we, we are not the most credible people. Um, And largely, it's because we think we know more. And I always approach these stories with saying flat out, I don't know what happened. I know what I've read. Uh, And I've been stunned at, you know, in every book, the number of people I speak to, who have headline names, who've been accused of things, who say to me, you're the first journalist who ever tried to contact me mm. and, and it, it just it blows my mind and it's a um, you know it, it is not this concept of fake news that that Trump you know blathers out and it's also not a concept of bias that people want to think I mean one of one of the problems is that you um, um, reporting is really hard. It's really hard and doing it correctly, um, takes time. And so, uh, and you, and you also have to, you know, if I call somebody up and my question is so and so somebody says such and such about you, how do you respond? Well, I am being a terrible journalist because I've already taken sides. I'm already saying, how do you respond Mm-hmm. Instead, what I always do, you know, unless it's like a news story and someone was, you know, indicted yesterday, and okay, now how do you respond to the indictment? Um, but if it's a if it's a complicated story, I walk in and I say, I want to hear what you have to say. I don't confront them with what other people have said. I let them tell their stories, and that doesn't mean that their story appears in the book as told people you know people perceive things in different ways people uh perceive things not everyone perceives things in the ways that make them look good you know um people can be when when you actually express a desire to hear the truth of someone's own recollections um the number of people who care about it being Accurate, uh, rather than reflecting on them well is, is really surprisingly high. Mm. Um, you know, there's a, there's a story, uh, in the prologue of conspiracy of fools, uh, which is a, which is a very ugly fight between a man and his fiance. And, um, readers, looked at that and said no one would ever tell you that kind of intimate detail that I mean, you know, the the guy was was drunk and saying horrible things and it was it was a really um you know a kind of a disturbing scene. And people were saying no one would ever say any of this to you. And I'd say, well, I don't see anybody saying it's wrong. And eventually one of those two people ended up testifying in a criminal case and was asked about those events. And it was, yeah, that's what happened. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's, but it's not as if I could walk in and say, Oh, tell me about this incredibly, you know, personal and embarrassing thing in your life. Uh, that came out of I think that fella I interviewed for 60 hours Mm -hmm. over a couple of years. Um, And so when you make it clear you want to hear everything, people start to tell you everything. So what about your next book? Do you have
0: that already figured out or you're still thinking about it? Where are you at with your next book? (laughs) Um,
1: I I delivered the manuscript two days ago. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) And... It is a, a very very different book, um, and it's one I've I've wrestled with for uh, many years. Um, uh, for a very long time in my life, I had, um, and actually still do have, uh, uncontrolled epilepsy. Um, for from ages eighteen to thirty two, I had. Um, Uh, frequent convulsions and a lot of, and I was thrown out of school. I lost jobs. I had, you know, a lot of very um, horrible things that happened. And, you know, the, the epilepsy foundation, um, not a lot of people talk about their, their epilepsy. Um, and around 2010, the Epilepsy Foundation and a bunch of other epilepsy organizations um, had a meeting where they were trying, you know, how do you educate the public about this condition? How do you get them to understand what it really is? How do you get people who have it to stop being afraid to come forward? Uh, because that, that still is an issue. And... um you know, there are famous people who have epilepsy who won't talk about it. Um, and, you know, ultimately I thought about this and I'd read an article about the, um, the meeting in 2010 and it was, well, somebody has to do it. So why not me? Hmm. Um, it, was, it was a very, very difficult book to do.
0: Yeah, I'll bet. Now, when is it going to get published?
1: uh, this fall, fall of 2018. Hmm. Interesting. uh, It's, you know, period. One of the things that was odd about this is, um, there was, there was a point pretty early on, you know, it's, it's very hard to get people to understand what it's like, you know, to be walking around every minute of every day Knowing you could be 15 seconds from hitting the ground and then not being aware of your surroundings for a very long period of time and your entire, you know, you could be injured, you could be, you know, lots of, lots of things could happen. Mm -hmm. And so during that time, because there really wasn't anybody who could, I didn't feel like could understand it, um, I started keeping very detailed diaries that were basically conversations with myself. Um, and eventually I moved on to tape recordings and, um, part of this book was going over all of that and going over, uh, recordings of myself when I was in very terrible, um, um, periods of time. And so, you know, reliving that and sort of hearing you know the, the whole point of the book is it can be this bad and you can still succeed mm. you do not have to let epilepsy govern your life and you don't have to let any trauma govern your life you can you can address i mean it, it is you know one of my friends read it and he said he you know he he took it as a lesson on his own life even though he had you know he doesn't have seizures uh, because it is about how do you incorporate and manage severe trauma uh, and still obtain the life you want? And so, um, you know, listening to sort of my own desperation, but knowing how the story comes out, you know, I really kind of wanted to reach back to that person I was and sort of say, you know, it'll be okay. You know, you'll, you'll make it. Um, but that was very, very hard to hear. So, sort of, it's a personal memoir of sorts, that I take it. Uh, it's a personal memoir of, but only, but only of um, um, dealing with this health problem and the psychosocial elements that go into it. I mean, start off with one thing, and you know, if you have seizures, you can't drive. Well, what do they tell you when you want to be a journalist? Uh, I was dedicated to being a newspaper reporter. What do they tell you? Start in a small town on a small town paper. Well, I couldn't because small town papers require you to drive. So I faced the challenge that my first job in newspapers had to be at a major newspaper in an urban area with mass transit, Um, while, by the way, I was still having convulsions. And so you know that um staying dedicated to that goal was um was was tough and um you know i i had a lot of well, like i said i got i got i got fired from a job um i was hired I, I, and i don't know if these days are right but i was hired on a tuesday they found out about my health on a wednesday and i was fired on a Thursday. I mean, I didn't make it through a week. Um, and you know, the New York times knew about it and they were absolutely wonderful. Um, CBS news knew about it and they were absolutely wonderful. And so, you know, there are, there are groups in this book that, you know, you see both sides of it. You see people who, you know, um, judge people based on their disability and other people who judge people based on their abilities. And I have been very fortunate that um, um I've encountered so many people who you know only have looked at the quality of my work and not um the fact that this that this problem exists.
0: Now, tell me, do you have a long list of your other book ideas that you want to write about or do you just kind of wait for some inspiration or something to come to you before you decide to write your next book?
1: Um, it's, it's a little bit of both. Um, it, you know, there, there are books that I started that never got done. Um, actually, this book um, that I just talked about, I started in 2005. And then decided it was too hard and just put it away and, you know, came back almost a decade later and said, well, maybe I'll do that. Um, The Enron book was supposed to be, um, first it was supposed to be (laughs) about something. It was, I had a contract for a completely different book that never got written. Then it was going to be about the accounting frauds of the early 2000s. And then it became the Enron book, you know, conspiracy of fools. Um, the uh, you know, five hundred days again, which is about the five hundred days after nine eleven, was a really was originally supposed to cover the eight years of the Bush administration, but it became a much more global story. And I realized that you know, every major decision that was made that you know dealt with. Um the response to 9/11. every major decision came in the first 500 days. And so that book changed while I was writing it. But there actually came a point, you know, I wrote the first uh, 400 pages of the book, stopped, realized I had started in the wrong place and that everything I had written was um, not the book. And so 400 pages of manuscript, Got junked, and I took those four hundred pages and squished parts of them down to a prologue, and basically started the book all over again. Um, You know, in terms of ideas, now I have I have things that I churn around in my head, like maybe that'll be interesting, maybe that that'll be interesting, but it's not really until I see you know what I was talking about earlier, the narrative arc. Um that I can stand back and say, okay, this is the book that's what that's what happened with the Enron book was that um there wasn't a narrative arc in the in the accounting scandals of the early 2000s that just was going to be a you know a, a lecturing book almost um there is a narrative arc it the the 500 days book um, was a little complex to have a narrative arc, and I kind of I kind of made one. You know, it ends on the night of uh, the first um, bombing in Iraq. You know, so you've had you've had nine eleven, and then everything that's built up between you know the war in Afghanistan, the the uh, uh, black CIA black sites. The uh, you know weapons of mass destruction search the um, you know arguments between Putin and Tony Blair uh, what was happening in 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 Canada what was happening you know in Syria and it was and it's all told in a narrative format and it's sort of showing how these global events actually all link together and there wasn't some vast. You know, plan, and nobody knew what they were doing about anything, and so it was—it was lots of people stumbling around trying to find answers. Um, my my next book, um, once I find a narrative arc uh, of a story I want to tell, that'll be it.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you have any goals in terms of uh, other kinds of books you want to write, like, say, fiction or something like that? Is there a specific thing you want to still do as far as um, a different type of writing?
1: You know, I was asked by the producer of uh, the Informant movie uh, to write a screenplay. Mm. And uh, I wrote about 20 pages, and I called her, and I said, I... I can't do this. Um, I said, I can't write dialogue. And she says, Oh, you write great dialogue. It's like, no, 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 no. That's not me writing. You know, my books are not me writing dialogue. That's the reporting reconstructing, you know, the best recollections of what the dialogue was when I'm writing dialogue. Everybody sounds like me. (laughs) And so, you know, screenplay was out. I've always wanted to write a novel, but I don't think I have the talent for it. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, so it, um, until I, until I figure out how to, you know, I think to be a novelist, you have to be a really good actor. And I don't think I am. I think you have to be able to, you know, incorporate yourself into someone else's mindset and someone else's life. And I don't mean empathy. I mean, you have to just assume a fictional character's role and, you know, everybody sounds like me because I'm not able to do that. Um, so, you know, maybe someday I'll try it again, not a screenplay, but, a, but a novel. Um, but, uh, um, I'm probably going to end up just sticking with what I do. Well, Kurt, it's been a fascinating conversation. I
0: really appreciate you taking the time. When you do come up with the next book idea, you'll have to come back and tell me about it.
1: We can also come back when my next book comes out. <laughs> that,
0: that, that sounds like a good plan. I was going to suggest that as well. Okay. All right. Very well, good.
1: thank you very much for having
0: me. Thank you, Kurt. This is Richard Hsu and Kurt Leichenwald. Thanks.